We'll look at Romans chapter 6 in just a moment. If you want to turn there. We're coming to the end of this study on sanctification, so I hope you're coming to the end of your sanctification, right? Got it all wrapped up, buttoned down. <laughs> I don't know if we should take testimonies now or not. Like, it just seems like there's a lot of uh, smiling going on. Uh, no, we certainly understand uh, what the author is getting at in this chapter that we're looking at this morning, where he asks the question, are you ready for a lifetime of daily change? A lifetime of daily change. I want to think through that this morning, a lifetime of daily change. Um, as believers, of course, this is our expectation, our hope, our confidence that by God's grace, we are going to change. Uh, we're going to be less sinful. We're going to get better and better at the spiritual warfare against temptation, against uh, the lies of the devil. We're going to get better at saying no to self. Uh, we're going to get better at having in our mind, what does it mean to love God with all my heart today? All those kind of things. We're just going to get better at the Christian life. Um, but it's helpful for us to remember uh, that that is a freedom that an unbeliever doesn't have. Uh, the author begins by calling this whole matter of sanctification freedom to choose and freedom to struggle, freedom to fight. You see, in Romans chapter 6, we see that in the unbelieving state, we don't have freedom to choose. We don't have freedom to struggle against sin. We, we actually are in bondage to sin. We, we, in a sense, want that. Romans chapter 6, verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So we were once slaves to sin because we were giving ourselves to the lies, to the deceitfulness of the devil there in the garden. In Adam, the federal head, our representative, in Adam we chose to obey the devil, to listen to his lies, to give ourselves to him as uh, the authority that we would hearken to. We're slaves of sin. But now he says... Thanks be to God. Some work of God has brought about this obedience from a heart. See, the heart wasn't obedient to God before. The heart was dead in trespasses and sins. But now that heart has been made alive and it is obedient to righteousness. Uh, so at conversion, Jesus sets you free. That's why he says, thanks be to God. Now we have this desire to obey and serve God. That was the promise of the Old Testament prophets, that God would put into you a new heart, uh, this fleshy heart instead of a heart of stone. God did that work. He's given us the desire to obey, to serve him. So now as believers, we are free to choose. 
obedience to God. We are free to give ourselves as willing servants to this God who has rescued us. Now, the old desires still exist, and you probably encountered them this week. You probably had to, had to wrestle with some things. You may have sinned this week in some of those areas, and you knew it, and you had to confess that and, and get back on the right path. The old desires still exist, but now there's this new desire, the spirit in you, in that new heart. And each day we're faced now with this choice. The spirit is influencing you and steering you in a direction. The lies of the devil appealing to the flesh are drawing you in a different direction. And Galatians 5 says these are opposed to one another. They're contrary to each other. The flesh lusting against the spirit, the spirit lusting against the, the flesh, both of them with strong desire, and you can't feel at peace until you make that choice. You're free to choose. Peter, in his first letter to the church, speaks of this battle of the desires. First Peter chapter 2. But you are a chosen race, verse 9 says, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. My Bible reading, I just read through the prophet Hosea in the calendar. And this, this is this verse. Hosea, having taken this wife that was unfaithful to him, having these sons that are probably not even his, uh, has these names for these children. And one of the names is, you are not my people. And the other name is, you, you won't have mercy. Uh, and they were representing this state of sinful rebellion of God's people, but then because of God's wooing, they would be brought back. And he says, one day those who were not my people would be called my people, and those who had not received mercy would have mercy. And that's our story. We're the unfaithful ones. We're the ones who were not God's people, who didn't know the mercy of God. But then, like Paul, on the road to Damascus, we encountered this light that brings us out of darkness and into light. And we became people who tasted mercy and were called God's people. So in this text, we see what we once were and now what we are. And now Peter's going to draw conclusions based on that beautiful story of God's conversion of us into his sons and daughters. Beloved, Peter writes, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against the soul. What does that verse mean for what we'll look at a little later like a sinless perfection? Somehow you live the Christian life long enough and you get to a place where you don't have to worry about sin anymore. You're above that. When Peter is saying, like shaking you by the shoulder, say, no, I'm serious. I urge you, brothers, that you abstain, that you intentionally say, no, I cannot, I can't do that. That you abstain from the passions. That's a word for strong desire 
of the flesh, those strong desires that the devil is appealing to regularly. Abstain from them. They're warring against your soul. And that's not just in the sense of an active conflict. It's an active conflict with a desired end. Putin doesn't just launch missiles in the Ukraine to be able to say there's a war. No, it's an active assault for a desired end, ruin, destruction, establishing that territory as his own. So when Paul writes to the Corinthian church about the devil building strongholds in your life, and he's saying, you got to tear them down. You, You can't let the enemy reclaim that territory that God has already won through the death of Christ. There's a war going on. The devil is warring against your soul by appealing to those desires. Peter goes on, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, when they call you an evildoer, that is, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There will be a dawning in their minds at some point that though they called you intolerant and hateful and old-fashioned and extreme right-wing and everything else you might hear about anybody religious these days, eventually they will reckon with those very words and they will have to acknowledge that that wasn't true. You were not the evil doer. They'll see those good deeds and recognize that you were bowing to the lordship of the creator. Beloved, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul and keep your conduct honorable before God and before the world. As Christians, it's clear from 1 Peter, from Romans 6, that we are free to choose what is right. We are free where the unbeliever is not to fight, to war against desires that would lead us down the path of ruin. So the Christian life is a lifetime of daily struggle, of daily war. But even in that expression, then, we have two, express, we have, we have two perspectives. If the Christian life is a lifetime of daily struggle, then we really have this big picture and the small picture. We have the whole story that looks all the way to the end, and then we have every day that is making up that whole story. So we look first at change being this lifetime task. And so we would be wise to think back over all the years of your Christian life. For some of us, that started when we were kids. And like Timothy in the New Testament, from a child, you've known the Holy Scriptures that were able to make you wise to salvation. Uh, For some of you, it was later in life. uh, And and God opened your eyes to see that sin will ruin and Christ can rescue. When you look back over all that time of Christian living, you realize you've, you've changed But you can look back to just this past week and realize that you would agree and you would say, but not enough. There's more that needs to change. It's a lifetime task. It's a marathon and not a sprint, we might say. There's not a 
a quick fix and everything's done. I accomplished it. I arrived. I got my degree in Christianity. And now I just kind of go through the rest of my life. Just not the way it works. In Philippians 1, and we've looked at it before, but Paul speaks of a confidence that he has that God, who began this good work in us, will complete it until. Now, that's an odd English expression because we, we hear complete and we think, all right, it's going to be done. And yet he says in our English language, it's going to be done until the day of Jesus Christ. He's going to be completing that task until Jesus comes or you go to see him. And Paul says, I have confidence in that. He's not saying, oh, this is really bad news. Like, this is a lifetime task. It's just going gonna, it's gonna to drag on endlessly. No, he's saying there is a confidence here. Why a confidence? Because when you lose it with your kids, you'll start thinking, I'm a miserable parent. What's the use? And the devil's going to say, exactly. You blew it before, you're going to blow it again. But when the devil tempts us to despair, what do we do? We sing it often. Upward I look and see him there, the one who made an end of all my sin, the one who declares me righteous. You see, I'm called to come back to what is my standing in Christ by faith. And in that moment, I have to remember what Paul says in Philippians 1. There is a confidence that though I'm, I'm looking at the episode of losing it with my spouse or my kids or having a lazy week where I could have gotten more done if I had been more diligent, or whatever the, the sin was, I look at that and I realize, wait a minute. Christ has dealt with that sin. There's forgiveness to be found. And my confidence is that I'm not going to stay in this state. But God is going to continue working on me until he perfects me. That's essentially what the day of Jesus Christ is. When you read Romans 8, there's a progression there, and it ends with we see Christ and we're glorified, which means not we float around with wings and a harp, but that we are now without sin. We'll have that resurrected body in a new heaven and a new earth, enjoying so much of what we think of even in this earth, but in a sinless state. There's confidence there. So when you hear that change is a lifetime task, take heart. This is good news because in the, in the daily struggle, you need the big picture. God is doing his good work. And when you come to that child or that spouse or whoever it is and say, man, I really blew it. Uh, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I'm praying that God would give me that confidence to believe he really is changing me, even through this situation. If we could get better at that kind of a script, the devil wouldn't have quite the stronghold or the foothold into our lives. Those lies wouldn't carry as much weight if we were anchoring all of our faith in the truth. Confess, forsake, and find mercy. Probably the next day, too but every day approaching it with the confidence that God is completing his work in us. Remember Ephesians 2.10 as well. After telling us we're saved by grace through faith and it's not of works, lest anyone would boast, the very next verse is, 
But having been saved by grace through faith and not of your own works, remember this, you are his workmanship, God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We know Jesus was a carpenter, but we probably don't often think of God as this present-day active creator or craftsman. But the reality of Ephesians 2.10 is you are, you are his project. He's continuing to, to whittle on you, so to speak, to carve into you this Christ-likeness so that he holds you up and he says, that looks like the beloved son. I'm making you into this image of Christ. And I've got to whittle off some of this anger and some of this lust or some of this fear of man. But when I do that through that painful process of sanctification and chastening sometimes, you're going to look like Christ. I assure you. That's why Paul says I'm confident. God's going to do this work. So when we sing songs that speak of trophies and throwing our crowns before the Lord, all that's kind of representative of this reality that we will be a trophy and a crown. We will be the handiwork of God on display for his glory. Heaven will be glorious for God as much as it will be glorious for us because he will take pleasure in the work that he has done. We see that in Genesis 1. When God made everything, he smiled and said, it's good. And the new heaven and new earth will reflect that same spirit. God will enjoy you in heaven. He sings over us now, the prophets say. He's going to continue that song. It'll just be all the, the more beautiful to think that we are worshiping him in that sinless perfection. So change is a lifetime task, but let that be an encouragement that God has promised his work to be done in this lifetime. Change, however, is also a daily task. Repentance and faith are daily disciplines. Most likely, you're going to find yourself needing to turn from sin this week. So we can't just think lifetime, oh, it's the big picture, you know, eventually I'll be what I need to be. That's, that's not the heart of First Peter with him shaking you by the shoulder saying, I urge you, brothers, abstain from that. It's warring against you. That's not a flippant attitude of, oh, you know, I'll, I'll get it fixed someday. If God's going to change me, he'll get it done eventually. No, this sanctification is also this daily task of repentance and faith, a daily battle against those desires that are warring against our souls. This changes by faith, of course. So in repentance and faith, that's going to happen when we're believing the truth and not the lie, when we're fueling a stronger desire than what the devil can appeal to. It's an active faith, not a passive faith. And this is the, the danger we're trying to avoid theologically. John Wesley had some ideas about sanctification that kind of set his followers on a path towards some bigger missteps than even Wesley made. But a Wesleyan view of sanctification generally relies on some stage of life or some crisis moment, much like conversion, 
that brings you into a state of what he would call entire sanctification. He's a good enough theologian not to call it glorification, but he did see like this potential for arriving, in a sense, at entire sanctification and kind of being ready now for the Christian life. That spawned off a more American view on the East Coast in the early days. New Jersey was kind of home to a Keswick theology, a movement of Wesleyanism that relied on the Holy Spirit to kind of take them to a higher life, they called it. Kind of a second tier of Christianity. There's the average Christian struggling, and then there's kind of a graduation to a higher life in which sin and its desire was generally repressed by the Spirit. So you didn't really have to wage war against anything because the Spirit kind of had, had gotten you to this place where that, that desire was repressed. It was kind of put down. The problem is you just don't talk to many Christians that feel like all that sinfulness in them has been repressed and they don't deal with it anymore. The reality is, I think there's a more biblical way than some of these views of sanctification, and that is the reality of daily warfare. That you wake up daily, and, and you'd better be thinking as much as you put on your outfit of putting on the spiritual armor that God gives us, because it's going to be a fight today. And so day by day, we apply our standing in Christ to what we're going to hear from the world around us, to the desires that are going to be appealed to, and we keep reminding ourselves of who I am, what God has done for me, and what he's called me to. There's the lifelong change that we have to keep in mind in this view of sanctification, and there's the daily change that we have to keep in mind. Almost paradoxical, a lifetime of daily change. But just like so much of our lives, like your parenting, you don't do it all in a day. It adds up. And some of the days are better than others, but, but the sum total is this progression towards an independent, thoughtful, responsible, hopefully God-fearing adult. Um, that's how God is dealing with us as his children. He's parenting us all along the way, obviously in perfection, unlike we parent our kids, but it's this general trajectory that we're looking at, a lifetime of change. But when we zoom in, we realize there was that day's events and the next day's events and the next day. So don't let any one of the days either be the enormous celebration of I've arrived. No, probably not. You've got a whole trajectory to go. But nor should we be thinking I've failed miserably. No, you haven't. That, that's just one of the battles in this war. So don't, so don't believe the lies of the devil's discouragement. Take God's path to deal with that failure, and let's keep our eye on the trajectory. So some people need to look more at the daily because they're kind of looking optimistically at this big picture, and they're not really looking at, hey, what are you doing about today? Others of you are more of the today kind of person, and, and you're not good at big picture. And you need to be, keep that in mind. 
So however the Spirit can help you, because both of these things are true, it's a lifetime, he'll complete this process until the day of Jesus Christ, and it's daily. Recognize a lifetime of daily change. The author goes on to say then that there's biblical reason for a lifetime of hope as well. When we're thinking about a lifetime of daily change, add in a good dose of hope. The title of the book is You Can Change. The author says, now personalize that. And from the scriptures, believe that I can change. If Romans 6 is true, that I can reckon myself dead to sin and alive to Christ, I can yield my members as instruments of righteousness to my Lord and Savior, then take heart. Recognize that change is something that you can do. Now again, this is the, saying I can change is in this whole context of what we've studied on sanctification. That God is going to do it, and yet he's going to ask you to be obedient and to exercise yourself in yielding to the Spirit and walking in the Spirit. So yes, I obey and I do something about my sanctification, but when I step back and really look at how it's happening, I know it's all of God's grace. He is doing this work. So I can change is not some kind of, you know, humanistic stamp on my Christianity. It's simply recognizing I can change. I'm not going to believe the lie of the devil that I'll never change. I'll never get any better. My marriage can never improve. My attitude's never going to get... No, that's not true. I can change. It's not inevitable that I sin. Though the reality is, I will probably sin again between now and the time I see Christ. It is not true that it is inevitable, that it is a foregone conclusion. When we're speaking of reality, we're simply looking at the Christian life and realizing the struggle of the warfare. We're looking at our, our flesh that still is this corruption that we're living in. We're looking at the wiles of the devil and accounting for the choice and we're recognizing I, there's a strong possibility that I may not choose rightly. But do not believe sin is inevitable. Otherwise, we become victims of something greater than us, something that has power over us. And that's not true. So there's a healthy tension there in understanding how I can change. So Adam, I think yeah. it's interesting because, you know, even, even the words I can change, which is really saying I am able to change, which obviously is sort of foundational, even that sort of sells sanctification in the Bible short. The statement should really be I will change as long as I'm pursuing God. <laughs> Not, I might be able to, right? So. Yeah, so the funny thing is, like, after kind of laying that out, he, the next heading is, I will change. Uh, so you're thinking, <laughs> you're, you're getting it. It's like, it's true. It's like, well, I can, that's true. But the reality is, I will change. Change may take a lifetime, um, but it will happen. And if my heart really is to become like Christ, though given days, there's going to be the ebb and flow here. We understand that. The reality is I will change. That is the inevitability. Um, sin is not inevitable, but Christ-likeness is. Uh, the Bible never says as a Christian, 
you must sin. You are going to sin. It doesn't say that, but it does guarantee us you will become like Christ. You will be sinless one day. That's the great hope of heaven. In the presence of God, of course, and worshiping him, but also in enjoying heaven in everything that we're told about a new heaven and a new earth. All of that enjoyment of heaven will be because of the perfections that God has now worked in all of us. I will change. One day we will be finally and completely changed. Philippians 1.6 calls it the day of Jesus Christ. But if we really look at that text, we're not told how that change happens. How do we get glorified? Now we know even physically this body will either be laid in a grave or when Christ returns, we'll meet him in the air and it's getting shed because we're going to get a resurrected body, a, a body without sin. But that's not the sum total of the change because that's kind of really, we're talking the body. What about the true sanctification process of the soul? How does that happen? And the answer is it will be by the same process that changes us now. When we go back to the beginning of the study of sanctification, we were in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where we read this, but we all, with unveiled face, beholding, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So we took out some of those phrases, not because they're unimportant, but to help us find what, what is the sentence here. And we found out what we were needing to learn was that beholding, we are being transformed. By beholding, we become what we should be. So if we are changed today by beholding, by seeing God, by seeing his character, by seeing his truth, his word, his promises, his commands, then we should expect that the ultimate change process comes by an ultimate beholding. And lo and behold, 1 John tells us just that. 1 John chapter 3, Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. Okay, so what does that mean? Because we kind of do know what we shall be. What he's saying is it hasn't been revealed so that you've experienced it. You haven't seen it with your own eyes what you're going to become. Right now, it's by faith that you have confidence that he who began a good work will complete it till the day of Jesus Christ. You haven't seen it. You can't really imagine it. I mean, you can try, but it'll, it'll be better than you could imagine. So he's saying, now we're children of God. We, we enjoy that relationship with him. By faith, there's all kinds of confidence and security and hope. But it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, the day of Jesus Christ, we shall be like him. Why? How? What does that mean? Well, Paul tells us. And it's kind of a mechanical thing. For we shall see him as he is. 
If it's true in 2 Corinthians 3 that now we become like him as we behold him. And that's not just looking. That's not just looking at a verse or looking at a book of attributes. But truly beholding him, we're being changed by that glory. Just as 2 Corinthians borrows on, Moses had gone up onto the mountain and just being in the presence of the Lord, beholding even just a portion of the passing by of God, he's glowing like radioactive material. And everybody's a little scared of the guy and asked him to wear a veil. Paul's borrowing on that whole imagery to tell us if we would behold God, we too would change to be like him as the Spirit works that change in us. Now John is building on all of that and saying when he appears, we will be like him. And it's not, you know, because there's this new process being implemented and God's going to go about. He said, no, it's that same kind of mechanical reality. If you're in the presence of this, it's going to change you. When he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And the, and the byproduct of being in that presence is you are sanctified fully. You're glorified. So this beholding then kind of helps us understand the full circle. Yes, when we behold him as he is, we'll be changed to be like him. But that can be happening now. And so for whatever change we want to see, we have to be remembering where we began. Beholding him. Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. That's our task this week. This is how we're going to strive towards sanctification. There's a lot of things we've looked at. Putting away the lies and believing the truth. We'll kind of tie a big bow on it next week. But the reality is we've got to leave here today and engage in our part in sanctification. And I think the, the biggest word to summarize it is beholding. We have to figure out how we are going to behold the glory of the Lord this week. How are you going to do that? Because if you don't, I don't think it's fair for you to have an expectation of change. It, it would be silly for you to, to stew about, man, I'm always messing up like this. I always, I'm always falling into the same pitfalls. and Try to have sympathy for you. You know, I guess all counselors would face that same thing. You, you'd face it with your own kids. It's like you try to have sympathy, but listen, you've got to make right choices. I do feel bad. The consequence is painful. I see that, but... Rather than saying, I always do the same thing, figure out what God has said about not doing the same thing. And he says, beholding him, you'll become something else. So how will you behold the glory of the Lord this week? What you realize then is not only is there a whole lifetime of change, not only should we have a lifetime of hope that this is possible, but there's a lifetime of grace to keep us on this right path to get us out of those kind of cloudy despair seasons. Get us out of that funk of like being cranky and upset and frustrated. Well, what do you need? You need God's grace to help you behold his glory. Completion of our sanctification comes at the day of Jesus Christ. Until then, don't be hanging on to some kind of hope of sinless perfection. Be hanging on to the hope of sufficient grace, the work of Christ, 
There's forgiveness there. There's our hope. We don't bypass Christ and get to, I just want to be perfect so I can be perfect. No, that's all going to happen because of what Christ has done for you, but that means something today while God is still working on us. There's a story of Spurgeon. It shows up in multiple accounts, and so we're not sure of the exact details. We just know something like this really happened. He was kind of frustrated with this idea of sinless perfection that you could expect to stop sinning eventually in the Christian life. Um, And so he didn't want to hold out that hope, and he didn't want other people holding it out either as this false idea. Uh, Let me just read this. The great Victorian preacher Charles Spurgeon is reported to have heard someone declare that he had achieved sinless perfection. Spurgeon said nothing at the time, but at breakfast the next morning poured a jug of milk over the man to test his claim. (laughs) It proved false. (laughs) With a footnote to go find the original story yourself. I think... I think we can all understand that. Like, it, if, if there's anything in us that thinks, you know, I'm going to get there and be perfect, you know, find somebody that will hold you accountable like that. Uh, we all realize, you know, that sometimes it's not even like Ten Commandment kind of sins. You know, like, we think of those as those are the really bad ones. Don't worship an idol or commit adultery or steal something. Um, but we also realize that all the other 603 laws that the Jews kind of found in the Old Testament law, other than those 10, fleshed out a, a reality that we're going to sin in a lot of little ways, we might call them, compared to those big Ten Commandment ways. Because the New Testament language is, sin is falling short of the glory of God. It's falling short of Christ-likeness. Sin is not loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And so you you may have been a great spouse and a good parent as far as the role and how it's exercised. But if you weren't loving God, then you missed it. So sinless perfection, I think, is, is kind of this myth that probably kind of evolved out of checking a lot of boxes and making it look like, man, I've done everything I should do, like the rich young ruler coming to Jesus. What do I need to do? And Well, you need to keep all the law. I've done all of that, he says. But Old Testament and New Testament both reveal to us that God always was aiming for the heart of his people. Though it looks like, you know, in our minds, the Old Testament was about law written on stone, Even when God gave them those commandments, he longed for them to have a heart for him. So he was constantly wooing them to return to him. He called on them to plow up their hearts so it wasn't this, you know, crusted over field. He wanted that to be turned over and ready to receive what he had for them. He wanted their hearts, and we see that in the New Testament as well. So understand that We're not just saying sanctification is 
doing all the one another's and checking them off and saying, I've been able to do everything that a Christian should do. It's where is my heart in the doing of whatever I do in the course of a day? During the Reformation, as people began to encounter more and more the light of God's word, they started to realize more and more that religion, what was at the time even Christianity, there was really only one religion, it was Christianity. Uh, It was the Bible, it was the church. It just happened to have a convoluted, kind of darkened Roman influence over it all. But it was what we would think of as the church. There, there wasn't Catholic church on this corner and the Baptist church on that corner. It was just the church, just that we would call it a, a Roman church, as basically Rome had kind of taken over uh, the primary see or place of authority in the early church and kind of degenerated into a more human approach to governing God's church. The reformers were shedding light, the light of scripture, on so much of what was being done, calling the church back to attention to the word. They protested at times that the Roman influence was covering up the word, hiding the word, neglecting the word. And in that protest, they became Protestants or Protestants. They were just They were just insisting that we go by what the word says. And to be fair, they were only really trying to reform the Roman church, just kind of steer it back, make a turn. And it ended up being what we would call the first church split into into massive difference that would not be resolved as so much of Papal authority just refused to surrender their right to be able to say, this is what is true, rather than let God's word say that. People were seeing the Bible now. They're realizing that being a Christian isn't just identifying with the Church of Rome, which was really like our citizenship today. You're kind of born an American citizen if you're born here. Being in the church in that day was kind of just like you're born into it. It's, it's just the safe thing to do and be. But now people were realizing, wait a minute, I, I, I don't belong to the church. I don't belong to God. They're encountering the gospel, the reality of this story of Jesus, God's son who was sent to save us from our sin. They're believing. And now you have these believing people who know their only way to heaven is by faith in Jesus. And yet they're reading of the righteousness of God, the righteousness of Christ that is theirs. And that sounds really good, but they're looking around at their lives and they're seeing that they, they still sinned at times. And in, in trying to help the people understand that, yes, you are righteous. You're standing in Christ. As God looks at you, he sees you as a saint, as one who is forgiven and destined for heaven. You are justified. You're righteous. That's your standing, even though at times when you look at your life or I look at it, I'm going to see you sin. But that that occasional fight with sin doesn't mean that you lose your righteous standing with God. It just means the battle's raging. It just that defines sanctification. The work's going to continue. 
So they had a Latin expression, simul justice et peccator. Simul, you recognize, simultaneously. So simul, at the same time, the Latin justice, just or righteous, at the same time you're righteous, that's your, that's your label, that's who you are, that's your standing, at the same time you're righteous and yet, the et, a sinner. Not by essence, but by description. You are someone who sins at times. And every one of us in this room could probably say, yeah, I know what the sin was in this past week. But for most of you, that sin in the past week didn't cause you to crumble and think, oh no, now I'm not going to heaven. Because you've, you've come by God's grace to understand your standing in Christ. Justice. You are just. You are righteous. And you could, you could be an ungrateful husband complaining about lunch and sinning against your sweet wife and keel over and have a heart attack and go to heaven and God is going to see you as righteous. That sin does not affect your standing. You're a sinner in the sense that you still struggle with sin, but you are declared righteous. God is faithful and just to look at the work of Christ that you have claimed by faith and say, you are as righteous as Jesus is. That's what it means to be dressed in the robes of the righteousness of Christ. So a study of sanctification is not designed to lead us to despair, but always to this beholding of Christ and realizing what he has done is for me. His perfect righteousness counts as mine when I say I'm trusting in him. And God's faithful to honor the work of Christ and our faith in it and lead us all the way home. Heavenly Father, thank you for the hope of sanctification, the grace that brings it down to us day by day in our daily struggle. Thank you for the confidence of your word that you, our God, are continuing your workmanship in us. Use even these words this morning and the thoughts in our mind to be guided by your Holy Spirit to help us change today. Help us to behold your glory so that we might become better reflectors of it. Lord, our children need to see sanctification. Our spouses would be so helped by our sanctification. The church would be blessed by sanctification. The world will be helped by the testimony of the work that you can do in your people. So for all these reasons and for your pleasure, would you change us today to be more like Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.